0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode six of Faith Practically. I am Darren Claxson, and in this session we'll discuss the challenge of interacting from grown spiritually. We'll discover how to balance between witnessing to those individuals and protecting yourself from negativity. And we'll see two contrasting examples of the power of influence in the Bible. But first let's pray. Heavenly Father, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. Leading guides today in Christ's name. Amen. Um, this episode is called The Power of Influence and it was suggested by one of you listeners. So please keep sending them in and we'll get them on the show. Shout out to Ed and Callie who wanted us to talk about the struggle of our influence in our relationships with our family and our friends. What do we mean by that? At some point of your life you reach a point where you have outgrown the friends you grew up with. These are the friends for the friends you did dirt with, you hung out with at college. You, you got close to, with them in the workplace. Um, and, and sad to say also, at some point, you may outgrow fam- members of your family because from a spiritual standpoint, you're on totally different wavelengths. And The more time you spend in the wo- word, uh, you spend in prayer, the more your relationship with Christ grows, your desires and your interests change dramatically, or at least they should change. Your manner of speech should change. The activities you engage in, the music you listen to, the things you watch on TV, hopefully those things will change. So the question is, what do you do with that friend or relative who still wants to go to the club every other night? Or every time you speak to them, they're they're just talking pure filth. It makes your ears cringe. Or they're just not about progress. You know, And and you don't want to come off judgmental, particularly because you know how bad you used to be and how bad in some ways you still are. But you feel like associating with this person who you used to be close to, or this relative who will always be in your family. This will somehow jeopardize your own faith. And and this actually goes beyond just spiritual growth. You know, maybe you have folks who are close to you who are in their 30s or their 40s, or God forbid, even in their 50s, and they're still acting like teenagers, and they don't want to be responsible adults. You know, you're about reading books, you're about bettering yourself, personal growth, and they just want to chill all day and watch reality TV, gossip about this person or that person, play video games, watch sports, whatever fun they can have to soak up every minute of extra time or free time that they have. You're about leveling up in your career, uh, building a business or investing, and they're just content punching a clock for the rest of their lives at that dead end job, and they look at you sideways when you even suggest the idea of, uh, of working towards financial freedom. You're about positivity, you're about solution-oriented thinking, and they always have this dark cloud hovering over them, and they're quick to tell you all the reasons why your new idea is going to fail, why life isn't fair, man is out to get you, You know what's the point of of trying to do something productive, you might as well just sit back with a cold one, complain about how bad life is, and, and, and just reminisce on the good old days. So whatever this picture looks like to you, you have labeled these individuals as toxic, and and detrimental to your own success. So the easy temptation is to cut these people out of your space altogether or just keep them at a distance as much as possible. Let that phone ring whenever you see the number pop up on your screen and, and limit your interactions to the occasional family reunion or the chance encounter at the grocery store. And maybe use your kids or your job or your school studies as an excuse for why you have not caught up to them to that point. But if you're being honest with yourself, you don't feel good about this. Particularly, you know, from, from the spiritual side, uh, standpoint, because you know that the Great Commission starts in your family, it starts with your friends, those with whom you have the most influence. And arguably, these people in your life might be the most difficult people to witness to. You know, you'll often find that converting total strangers is a million times easier because these people, they know your past, they know the dark places you've been, they've seen you at your lowest. And here you come with a Bible talking about how good God is, and they're, they're not buying any of it. You know, what, what? you think you better than me now? You know, you judging me when you done done way worse than me, and now you're holier than now? Nah. So that's hard enough. But then when you try to put space between you and them, they're not stupid. They see right through that. You know, it may take them a while for them to catch on, but they see you hanging out with your Christian friends. Everyone's got a halo over their heads. Everyone's ready for translation. But you ain't got no time for the little people you see what i'm saying you know we're we, we not good enough for you anymore so so you can make a bad situation even worse now here's the thing because your friends and your family know you like they know the real you you have the potential for the greatest impact on their lives you know, you're not some tv preacher you're not some internet evangelist with a million followers who talks a good talk but god alone knows if they're legit Cause they know who you who you used to be, and the addictions that you used to have, and the type of language that used to come out of your mouth. When you show them that who you are now in Christ is really authentic, it's a new creation, and, and you humbly give God the credit for your transformation, that's the most powerful testimony they could ever receive. And that, that's supernatural. They cannot explain that away. So, self-help books and therapy and continuing education and hard work, those are all good. And you can mention those things, but, but ultimately you have to give all praise to the most high. So how do we bridge this gap and connect those two sides, elevating our relationship with that friend or that relative from you ain't fooling me with that Christian talk to them recognizing your genuine boldness in Christ and then being impacted by your conversion? How do you protect yourself from being corrupted by negative influences while still honoring that great commission to acknowledge Christ before everyone, particularly those who are closest to you. To answer that, we're actually gonna dive into our case study a little bit earlier than we normally do and, and, and spend some time seeing what we can learn from two examples in the Bible and the power of the influence they had over their family and their friends and the influence that was exerted upon them in return. Coming from the book of Genesis chapter 11, where we read about a man named Terah. Now Terah is the father of Abraham, and at this point his, his name is Abraham, Abram, but we're calling him Abraham throughout this narrative. And Terah decides to go to Canaan. And he takes with him Abraham, Abraham's wife Sarah, and his nephew Lot. Now Joshua 24 tells us that Terah and, and many in Abraham's family were idol worshippers. They worshiped the moon, uh, they worshiped all kind of false gods. So Terah's purpose for going to Canaan is not what we see later with Abraham being called by God to to, to go to Canaan. Terah's just looking for a new pasture. He's looking for a new home. And and so so they get to Haran, which is about halfway between Ur of the Chaldees, which is where they're from, and Canaan. And when they get to Haran, Terah decides to settle. You know, for Terah, Haran was good enough. You know, I know we said we're going to go to Canaan, but but the land is good here, I'm tired, I don't want to go any further, I'm old. Yeah, this was in his comfort zone. And, and for a time, Abraham, even though he did not join in with his father's worship of false gods, he also may have gotten a little complacent So, because he stayed in Haran. The thing is, even though Haran, as I said, is about halfway between Ur and Canaan, going from Ur to Canaan was easy comparatively because they're on the same side of the Euphrates River. It was crossing that deep and, and treacherous river to get to Canaan, that was a totally different matter. And 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 we're talking about crossing all of their animals, all of their possessions, all of their servants. I mean, this was a big deal. So 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 to do so would be a commitment to utterly cutting off their former lives in herb. Well, Tara's like, nah, we're cool, we're gonna stay here and 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 it's when Tara dies that God officially calls Abraham to get out. Leave your country in in chapter 12, your kindred, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. So presumably, Abraham tried to witness to his family to no avail. But it seems that he escaped unscathed by, by their negative influence. So them worshiping all these deities, these false gods, we don't see any later account of Abraham falling into idolatry. So up until that point, he still had more influence than they, his family, had over him. And under normal circumstances, it's very possible that God could have made a great nation out of him right there in Ur. The test of faith and and the test of being barren at their old age, he and his wife, all of that from a human standpoint could have happened there. But from God's point of view, he's like, if I'm going to do what I plan to do through you and establish this great nation of Israel from your seed, I need you removed from those influences. In other words, if Abraham stuck around, it's very plausible that he might have eventually gotten sucked in. So when it comes to you and, and you trying to balance the influence you have over that, that relative or that friend versus the influence they have on you. Sometimes God will let you know, straight up, you need to separate yourself from them, maybe for for a time, or maybe indefinitely, because I'm about to do a great thing in you, but I can't while you're still susceptible to those influences. There's another thing. Sometimes when you make a big transition, like Abraham crossing the Euphrates River, people will distance themselves from you without you having to make that, that uncomfortable choice. You know, I'm sure that Abraham's family at first tried to talk him out of leaving, Because the communal society of the people at that time, everyone lived among their relatives. But when Abraham was resolute and going to Canaan, come what may, they had no intentions of making that trek with him. So it was easy. It wasn't like this wasn't about Abraham dissing them or considering himself better than them. He had to do what he had to do, and they made the choice to not roll with him. You decide to be a Christian. You become convicted about some radical change in your life that God is calling you to do when you commit to a life that is more difficult and and requires hard work and dedication and it's unpopular, some of those toxic relationships will resolve themselves and the wheat will be separated from the chaff. Then we go to chapter 13 and we see that when Abraham decides to follow God's call and continue on to Canaan, Lot, his nephew, decides to go with him. Now Lot could have very easily gone back to Ur when Terah died, like I said, that was the path of least resistance. It could be like, man, God is doing something with you two. I'm not a part of that. I got nothing to do with it. I don't want to be a third wheel. But clearly Abraham had influence on him. So he decides to say, even though this was an unknown territory, this was an unknown path, didn't make any sense. He decided to roll with his uncle Abraham. So they crossed the river. They had this tumultuous pit stop in Egypt, which you can read about at the end of chapter 12. And they settled near Bethel. Now, by this point, Abraham and Lot—they're—they're—they're they're, they're wealthy. They're loaded. They've got sheep and oxen and cattle, and their possessions are so great that there's just this sharp contention between Abraham's servants and Lot's servants. Like, they can no longer be in the same place. It's not enough pasture for all of the animals on on both camps. So Abraham heads it off of the path. He's like, you know what? This is a bad situation. Lot, I'm gonna let you choose. Which way to go? Let's go our separate ways. And you get first dibs. Now, here's where good influence only goes so far, because Lot should have deferred the pick to his wiser, older uncle. But it said he decides to pick what he thought was a better option in his eyes, which was the plain of Jordan to the east, which was near Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 12, of Genesis 13, Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now, notice he's not actually in the city of Sodom which he and everybody else knew was just full of wickedness. There was no question that was not a place to be, at least for God's people. So it says he pitched his tent and he's outside on the plains, not actually in Sodom. But then what happens? Presumably, he starts going to the city. I mean, you can't camp outside of Las Vegas and and see all the lights and and just not go in at some point. You can't be staying in some little tent. Lot's wife is like, "Yo, we, we got we got loot, we got money. What are we doing in this tent? They got houses up in there. They got three and four story mansions, you know, bamboo floors, new countertops, new appliances. What are we doing in this tent?" So he so he's a businessman. So he probably goes in and does some business, makes some friends, gets invited to parties here and there. Some he turns down. Some he goes. Uh, goes to the casino, doesn't go in, just just checking it out from the outside. Or if he does go in, he doesn't gamble. He he may go to the counter and order a club soda. He's not going to drink any alcohol. Checking out some of the houses, seeing what the market's like. But by Genesis chapter 14, we see that Lot is now living in Sodom. So he's moved from the plains outside the city, the chapter 14, where he's actually in Sodom. Now at this point, um, Sodom and the four nations that they are allied with revolt against King Cuttaliomer, who he's the king of Elam, and and three and his three compatriots. Um, they've had Sodom under subjection for twelve years, paying taxes to them. And, and Sodom decides to to revolt. We're changing the conditions. We don't want to pay anymore. We're out. So Cuttaliomer and, and and his squad. They come through, wipe out their armies, uh, ransack the city, and they take the people of Sodom captive, including Lot and his family. Should've stayed in the tent. <laughs> and and what does Abraham do? He finds out, he about the attack, finds out his nephew is in a bad situation. Does he abandon Lot altogether? You know, he, he could've been like, you know, I told him, I ta- told him them Sodom folks was not to be trifled with, I told him not to hang out with them, you know, this is God paying him back for not, for, for not letting me have the first choice. No. He gets up, gathers his little army of 318, puts himself in harm's way, and they rescue him. It's actually a very similar story to Gideon and his 300, how they attack the Midianites from all sides. surround them. And Abraham and his little army pursue the enemy, drive them out, and they rescue everyone. Here's the thing. When God separates you from someone that you were close to or he th- shows you through an untenable situation like the one between Abraham and Lot, that that relationship could not continue its current course, even from a distance, you're looking for any and every opportunity to witness, not condemn. And when they get into trouble, you're looking for any and every opportunity to rescue and to help, not pass judgment. But you're not going to enable them either. And and this is the same situation with Lot. Like this should have been a warning a lot because even though abraham probably spoke in love you know he 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 didn't judge him he wasn't condescending after he rescues him and they all survive by the skin of their teeth he likely suggested you know maybe sodom is not the place for you you know them boys could come back like remember abraham's army was small you know their mission was not to wipe out this this overwhelming uh, force that outnumbered them their mission was to get back the hostages so now that they drove them out they can come back with a vengeance and, 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 and just wipe them out, because the first attack by Colonel Leomer was not personal. It was about them putting down the rebellion, getting them back under submission, and getting them to pay taxes again, because dead men pay no dues. But, but now, they're coming through with a vengeance. This is total annihilation. They're not taking any prisoners. And so Abraham have said, Lot, there's no time better than the present to get up out of Dodge. Come on back with me. We'll make room for you and your family. At Le- least should you be safe. And Lot probably was like, "Unc, I'm a businessman just like you. You know, you see what happened in Sodom. The stock market has plummeted. This, this is go time. You know, property prices are at rock bottom. So everyone else is selling. I, I, I have money. It's buy low time. I can clean up. I can set up time. I can set up house. I can be a thousand times richer than I am now. So now nah, I, I ain't leaving. This is prime opportunity for me to come up. And, and we see that by Genesis 19, Lot's no longer in a tent." He's no longer in the plains outside the city. You know, maybe he was in a condo in the outskirts of Sodom. Now he's at the city gate. He's on a strip. He's in the middle of the action. And now it says he has a house. You know, he's in a gated community. He's got his Olympic-sized pool, a six-car garage. He is living the life. And meanwhile, Abraham is told by God that he's about to destroy Sodom because of his wickedness. And, and by this point, Abraham could have said, well, I told Lot time and time again about Sodom. You know, he, he had that near miss when them kings came through, took him, capped him, had him all shook. He refused to listen. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. He's on his own. And this is what we do with friends or family. that keep getting the bad situations. So we bail them out. We lecture them over and over again to keep making the same mistakes keep coming around and say, yo, let me hold $100. I'll get you back on payday. Know full well, they're not going to pay you a dime. You know, you told them not to marry that crazy man or woman, and now they're at each other's throats. You told them not to be up partying and drinking all night, showing up to work late, half asleep, and now they've been fired from their third job in three months. You know, you know whatever the end result is, he might be like, I, I, I did my best. And you reason that maybe them getting their comeuppance is, just, come up and so we'll do them some good. So he's going to sit on the sideline, let it play out, and maybe even indulge in a little I told you, whole, I told you so giggle as you watch sipping your lemonade on the sideline. This is not what Abraham does with Lot. He doesn't give up. He intercedes on behalf of his family member. He reasons that the time that he spent with Lot, there was some seed of righteousness that was planted in him. So he bargains with God and gets him down to 10 being the number of righteous people that if God finds in the city he will spare the entire place from destruction so Abraham's thinking Lot's a good man he would have chosen a godly wife you know he has two daughters he would have raised them right you know maybe he got a, a messenger a message like a pigeon message from 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 Sodom letting him know that both of Lot's daughters have been engaged to be married Lot would have taught them how to find good men with whom they were equally yoked he would have kept everyone on the Strait of Nara under the roof of his house. So so in Abraham's mind, that's six people right there. And living in Sodom, as wicked as it was, Lot would have shared his faith. He would have had an impact on someone, friends, neighbors, business associates. All it took was four more people. So by the time Abraham gets done praying with God and, and negotiating, so to speak, he feels pretty good about his prayer. Back in Sodom, Lot's chilling in his penthouse, probably one of several properties he owns at this point. And two angels disguised as men come to visit his house. So now it's late at night. And they test him, and my, and I believe, by testing him, by, by saying, yo, we're gonna go ahead and sleep outside. And, and Lot's like, nah, yeah, they, don't let the hot tub in the back fool you. Sodom ain't no joke, especially at night. Known for Jack and the brother. That's all they do. You know, you need to come on in the house. So to me, this is a test because the angels, if, if I'm the angels, I'm thinking, Lot, you recognize this place is exceedingly wicked. So two questions. One, why hasn't your influence made an impact on the state of your community? And two, if you weren't able to positively influence them to where now it's not even safe to be outside, why are you still here? Think about yourself. If the friends that you regularly associate with are so vile and they're so unpredictable that you wouldn't bring around your mama, your children, your pastor, or any decent folk, you probably shouldn't be spending time with them, or at least significant time with them. You know, at some point you have come to that untenable situation, and and now instead of them, uh, you influencing them, they're negatively influencing you. And this is what's happening with Lot. Locals in the neighborhood, they see these men going to Lot's house, they start banging on the door. They, they got bad intentions toward the angels. And, and and Lot defends the men. And, you know, the apostle Peter breasts his heart. He calls Lot a righteous man in, in 2 Peter chapter 2. Calls him righteous three times. And, and you know, I'm not going to call Peter a history revisionist after so much time. Uh, but here it is. Lot is basically willing to barter his daughters in exchange for the safety of these two men that he's just met. And, and, and Peter tells us that, that Lot detested the evil deeds that were committed in the city. And it seems that Lot had kept his friends at a distance, didn't want to piss them off or whatever. You know, they even tried him as being a foreigner, you know, as, as being a hater when he tells them, please don't do this thing. Clearly, the influence they had over him was stronger to where he could do something as vile as serve up his family members that he's supposed to protect. Same deference and and well-being that he had for the angel visitors he could have shown towards his daughter. And the men who were attacking, thankfully, they don't accept the deal. They break down the door, or they try to break down the door and get in. And the angels intervene at this point. They strike the men with blindness, and they tell Lot, Yo, go snatch up any friends or family that you have in the city, because this place is about to go up its boat any minute. Lot tries to warn his sons-in-law, but they laugh at him which is also is amazing because at that time of arranged marriages, Lot would have picked suitors for his, for his daughters. So, so these are the men that, that Lot chose, not godly men, not men who would have recognized the evil in the city and, and be like, yo, you know, let, let, let's roll. The nuts, sum the net sum of his influence was zero. So the angels end up literally dragging Lot his wife, and his two daughters out of the city before fire comes down from heaven and consumes the cities. So we're talking about the power of influence. And despite Abraham's best hopes and his most fervent prayers, during the years that Lot spent in Sodom, he had not positively influenced influenced one soul. That benchmark of ten righteous people wasn't even close to being met. So that's why judgment was coming. His wife was not impacted. She was saved only to be lost when she looked back because her heart was still in Sodom. And his daughters, who concocted this scheme to get him impregnated by their father. You know, these are the individuals that Lot should have had the most impact on. Um, you know, as, as a man, that is what you're supposed to, to, to do. Your family should be the first people to give that influence, that positive influence. His daughters get him liquored up on two consecutive nights, and, and, and I still can't imagine Lot being so hammered. He doesn't know what's going on. But even if you give Lot a pass for the first night to fall for it again, nah, nah, bro. So Lot clearly had some issues. And again, he's called a righteous person. And I like to think it's because he had some time after this whole ordeal to reflect and repent. Just like Solomon, after all the foolishness that he did with with the heathen women that he was tied up with, and eventually he has a moment of clarity and he writes a book of Ecclesiastes. I imagine Lot had some time after the fact so what can we glean from these examples let's move over to self-check ask yourself what kind of influence do you have on those closest to you do people feel better about themselves when they're with you do they feel empowered and encouraged or they feel stupid do they feel less than, than than worthy are people comfortable going to you with gossip are people comfortable cursing around you or are they guarded you know, maybe they do those things for a while, but then they stop, start apologizing every time it happens. And if that's the case, why? Well, are, are, they, are they afraid of you being critical and they're just changing while they're around you? Or they genuinely don't feel a need to engage in that kind of behavior because your example makes them want to be better? How do you respond to untenable situations with those that you feel that you have outgrown? Do you often make that excuse, well, you know, I'm in the relationship building phase, you know, I don't want to make them uncomfortable or or come off condescending. But like Lot, you just stay in that phase indefinitely to where the net sum of your influence over them is zero. If the people that you are close to are toxic and you see this, I got the same questions for you that I have for Lot. Number one, why hasn't your influence made an impact on the state of your community, on the state of those individuals who are close to you. And number two, if you weren't able to positively influence them, then why are you still hanging around them? If your city was in danger of falling under God's judgment, how many people would be saved? How many of your neighbors would be survived? How many members of your family would survive? Would you survive or would you succumb to those influences? Would you be dragging your feet when it was time to leave because judgment was coming? because you have been impacted by their influence more than they have. Who is influencing whom more? You know, you or them? What impact has spending significant time with them had on you and your passion and the way that you speak and your free time activities? What impact has it had on on your spiritual walk? Are you praying less or more? Are you studying less or more? Because Abraham, we see... He was a good influence on his family, whether it was terror or whether it was Lot, but he separated himself from them when the situation became untenable or when the the influence exerted upon him was greater than the influence he exerted on them or when God specifically commanded him to get out. So let's take Abraham's example. When you reach that point that you have to put distance between you and a close friend or relative, pray about the situations that come about between you and them. You know, sometimes it's a situation that God is telling you, clearly, I'm, I'm letting you know it's time to cut, to sever that connection for the time being. But even if you get to that point, never stop interceding on behalf of them. Always pray for and, and take advantage of every opportunity to reach out to them. And always use bad situations they find themselves in, not as a means to throw I told you so in their face, but rather as a means of witnessing to them with the contrast of your own life. Take some of the counsel we've discussed in past episodes about praying before you speak and an act, uh, and being transparent, being authentic. And if you haven't been consistent in displaying the love and the character of Christ to them, don't make excuses or act like it never happened. Suck it up, own it, and acknowledge it. Either our faith will separate us from the world or the world will separate us from our faith. We have a responsibility to those in our sphere of influence to do whatever God empowers us to do to save them. But at the end of the day, once you have sounded that watchman's alarm of, of danger to the, your friends and your family, and, and they're not listening, you got to sing that song, I'm on my way to kingdom land. If my mama don't go, if my father don't go, if you don't go, don't hinder me. I'm on my way. Praise the good Lord. I'm on my way. Inspire Heads for Prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that you have put people in our lives, not just for us to be witnesses to them, but for them to have an impact on our lives and, and for our interactions with them to be part of the salvation process that we will find us to be ready when you come for us. Father, you know how difficult it is for us when we want to do right and, and stay on the path for salvation. And sometimes we look at these people that you place in our lives as liabilities, as, as difficulties, as hindrances to, to us making our calling and our election sure. And, and I ask that you forgive us for the times we've been condescending, times that we've been a bad example, you know, we've been a bad influence, we've been a bad representation of you. Help us to make up for lost time, uh, if, if that is the case. Help us to portray you in a manner that they will see that only you, it is only the power of your spirit on our hearts that is changing us from the person they knew however many years ago to the person now, that we are now. Give us words to speak, give us eyes to discern when it's time to move forward, when it's time to stand pat and when it's time to leave a, a relationship. And when we sever that connection, keep us faithful, Father. Uh, keep those individuals on our hearts and our minds as we pray for them And, and when we have opportunities to reach out to them and to offer assistance soften our hearts that we can respond in love and continue to be that testimony so that all of us in the end can hear those words well done good and faithful servant all these things we ask in your son's name amen if you're watching live we have another episode coming in in about one minute get my recorder going, hold on. Uh, let me see. <clears throat> <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode tw- seven of Faith Practically. I am Darren Claxton, and in this session we'll see why we should abandon the usage of a phrase that's very popular in Christian circles. We'll talk about the underrated power that we have of free will, and we'll see a biblical example of why we cannot blame the devil for the things that we do. But First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us understanding hearts that we may discern between good and evil and walk in your ways. In Christ's name, amen. There is a saying that we, as people of faith, often use. Bad things happen to us. A loved one gets unexplainably sick. We have endless trouble at work. We have marital problems, constant financial difficulties, kids acting a fool, whatever. And we say, well, devil is busy. Go to church. Someone asks, how was your week? And, And you say, you know, devil's been on my case, been attacking me left and right. Or let's say you commit to improving your prayer life improving the time that you spend in the Word, improving your relationship with God, but every time you try to do one of those things, uh, something comes up. You, so you say, the devil's got me so caught up, has got me so distracted all week, you know, I, I don't know what to do. So this episode is entitled, Stop Blaming the Devil. A- and first, let's establish a few things. Is the devil an independent adversary of the Most High and all who choose to be faithful to him? Yes. Do the devil and his minions wreak havoc on this world on a daily basis? Most definitely. Is there an intense spiritual battle between God's angels and the devil's angels, and we're caught in the middle? And it's only by the mercy of God that we're not wiped out, no doubt. But let me tell you what happens when we say the devil is busy, or or some equivalent statement, which is that which is true. He is busy, but here's a problem with that. There's actually two problems. The first is that it minimizes the power and sovereignty of God, which we'll focus on on a later episode. But we know that the devil's only desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. Like, if he had his way, we would all be wiped out. He hates every single one of us. Those that serve God, he wants to snuff them out so they can't influence others to be saved. And, And those on his squad, he wants to cash them out while there's still chips on his side of the poker table so the Holy Spirit doesn't get to them and soften their hearts and they end up being converted. So he's not thinking about anything but our destruction. And when we say the devil is busy, it, it discounts the fact that all of this is within the framework of God's control. You know, the Bible says all power has been given to Christ and he has given us authority over all the power of the, of the, of the devil. So the so de- devil does not have any real power. Satan is not turning up the heat. You know, we may think that if we decide to follow Christ or go into to a ministry or do something powerful for him, then all of a sudden it seems like the devil's attacks are ramped up. But the devil's not doing anything otherworldly. God's the one who's turning up the heat, who is allowing those attacks that are always there to come through more intensely, even either to get our intention or to move us off a state of complacency or maybe it's to remind us that we get to rely on him more, to ultimately refine us and those around us to be saved. So the devil ain't running things. He's just a sergeant who ultimately has to take orders from the general. So, so let's give the general front page of our press, and let's relegate the sergeant to a footnote in the classifieds. So that's the first thing. Saying the devil is busy, busy or some to that effect minimizes the effect and the sovereignty of God. And the second thing is this mindset gives us an excuse to not be accountable for our own actions. You know, many of the attacks that we credit the devil for are really just the consequences of our own deeds. You know, if it's pouring rain outside, torrential rain, and you go out without an umbrella, and you come in all soaked, will you blame the rain for getting wet? No, you know, you you blame the fact that you went out without an umbrella, without the proper clothes or equipment. Rain is gonna be there regardless. And likewise, the devil is going to be there regardless, doing what he does. And it's through our disobedience that many times we give the devil legal authority by going outside. Um, But even still, God is continually cushioning the blow. So he lets in enough to shake us up, but not more than we can bear. You've seen the cartoons where, you know, someone is struggling to make a decision. Maybe they're tempted to do something wrong and an angel pops up on one shoulder and the devil pops on the other shoulder and they're going back and forth and this person's caught in the middle but the truth is we don't need the devil on our shoulder you know we were conceived in sin we're shaped in iniquity we do just fine all by ourselves so if you don't believe that you look at a baby the baby is the most selfish creature on the planet all the baby is thinking about is what he needs what she needs they don't care uh, about the fact that you haven't got any sleep you know, you're trying to eat, you're trying to work, you're trying to live your life, they must come first. And that selfishness doesn't go away with age. It, it just changes its form, you know? So, so, for example, if you have kids around a table and they're all eating pizza and they get to the last slice, everybody wants it, everybody's grabbing it. They don't know any better. But then you have a bunch of adults around the table and there's one slice of pizza left. Now, everybody knows it's rude to grab, but everyone still is like, I I want that piece of pizza. And everyone is, you know, fake sincerity, oh, you have the last piece, you have the last piece. But inside they're like, please say no, please say no, because I want that piece of pizza. And we don't have to be taught to be selfish. You know, a toddler doesn't have to go to school to learn how to throw a tantrum, to learn how to be disrespectful, to learn how to misbehave or be disobedient. It is innate inside of every single one of us. So the devil is not causing us to sin, He is just fanning the flames that already exist. If the devil died tomorrow, now I know Revelation uh, portrays what his his fate will be, but just hypothetically, if the devil died tomorrow, you think people would stop being greedy, stop killing, stop stealing, committing adultery, uh, being prejudiced, being misogynistic, being rude? No. Now, would things be better? Of course. But sin is already here. Until Christ comes again, the effects of sin are on this planet. They're inside each one of our hearts. The bottom line is when we give credit to the devil for what he does, it really discounts the power of choice that we have. There's nothing like the power of choice. Now, you realize the devil does not have any free will. Like, he had his choice. He's locked into his choice, so he has been existing for thousands of years Dedicated to the choice he already made. He can't can't change at this point. But we as humans, while we still have breath in our bodies, we have free will and the devil wants to snatch that or or, or give the illusion that we don't have a choice. It's too hard to live a godly life. It's too hard to resist temptation. The temptation not of him whispering in our ears, but of our flesh saying, I want to do this. I want to do things my way and not God's way. And God in his mercy... He always provides a, uh, a way of escape. You think about when, when you're tempted to do wrong. You know you shouldn't engage in a certain activity uh, or consume a certain substance, and, and you're deliberating, you're in the valley of decision. If you were to go back to the last time that happened, you, you probably can think of something that happened in that moment that gave you a way of escape. Maybe it was a thought that the most high planned in your mind. You know you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe it was a legit excuse. You know, you're about to do something, and and the phone rings, you know, a a family member or a friend. Something else happened to distract you from what you were going to do. Uh, You try to pick up the phone to call that person for whatever sinister reason you had in mind, they're not answering. You try to go to that website, it's not loading up. You know, he always provides a way of escape. He always gives us truth in the midst of the lies that we tell ourselves, that we delude ourselves into believing because we want to do the things that we want to do. So when we sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. You know, the devil's happy, he's sipping his tea, eating, eating his popcorn on the sideline, but at the end of the day, we're the ones who made the choice. Let's look at our case study, which is found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 22. Now this is actually a continuation of the case study we did in episode 4 from 1 Kings 20. You know, remember this wicked King Ahab got a miraculous victory over the Syrians and the king of Syria, Benadad, gets away, but his army is decimated. And so he's, he's back in his city, and he knows that he has to face the music at some point. Because any reasonable king with an ounce of intelligence would send their armies after him and just finish him off. But the 411 was out on Ahab. Everybody knew he was a punk. He was a spoiled brat. He, he, he had no spine. He was a pushover. His wife ran everything. He was quick to pout if things didn't go his way. And, and, and so Benedad is thinking, you know, maybe I can, I can take advantage of that. So even in a position of weakness, even in defeat, he meets with King Ahab, and he, he tries to punk him, plain and simple. He actually sits down with him and dictates to him the terms of a peace treaty. Right? Like Normally the victor makes the rules, but he, in a conquered state, is like, yo, check this out, player. How about you let us live? You let us keep our government, our infrastructure in place. Uh, let us keep our money, all of our resources. We don't have to pay any taxes, no tribute. All of our people get to live free, live and let live. And, and then we'll, we'll let your vendors come to our marketplace downtown, set up shopping in Damascus. We'll throw in a couple of polo t-shirts and a bag of Skittles. We call it Even Steven. Deal? And, and, and I can see him sitting like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> and Badass says, okay, okay all the cities of Israel that my father snatched up from your father I'll give them back to you. Now, it might take a while, you know how it is, gotta relocate everyone, gotta get the zoning commissioner down here, he's a busy man, there's, there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of backlog, a lot of red tape to get through, but at some p- point we'll get it all squared away, okay? Ahab says, your word is good enough for me, my brother. And a prophet comes to him and rebukes him, like what, y'all BFS now? That's your brother? You, you were supposed to take him out. Like, This was a man marked for death He had chance after chance to see the power of Yahweh, didn't capitulate, he's constantly harassing God's people. It was time for him to go. So now you a dead man. It's going to be your life for his life and your people for his his people. So now 1 Kings 22, three years have passed. There's no war with the Syrians because most likely they've been building up their forces again and buying time to get strong enough to, to attack Israel. But Benedict to this point has not fulfilled his end of the bargain in giving back the cities that he promised in the armistice. Now maybe he's given some of them, but he's not giving them all back. And I like to think that at some point during those three years, Ahab tried to get the cities back, and, and probably in his own way. So, so he probably went to Benedict and said something like, yo, man, Jezebel's man. She wants me to ask for my city back. You know I wouldn't trip. And Benedict is like, what city? Ramoth Gilead, the one your pops took from mine. The one I've been asking you about. Oh, that city. Ain't no you want it back, homie, it's right over here. But I got a confession to make, you're not gonna like it. That's my city, punk! Come get it! You want some of this? Ahab's like, no. So he goes, running back to his officials, with a tail between his legs, he's moping, he's pouting, as this his won't. And he's like, I asked Benadad about turning over Raymond Gilead back to us, and he won't do it. I was very reasonable But I get no respect from him. That's my city. My city. I want it back. What are we gonna do? And officials like, yo, bro, you the king, man. What you asking us for? So at this time, Joseph, the king of Judah, comes comes by because his son has just married Ahab's daughter, which is asinine of itself because Joseph is actually one of the few good kings of Judah. You know, and for good reason, we don't see a lot of interaction between Judah in Israel. But Jehoshaphat comes through, and Ahab sees opportunity. And so so, so he tells him, Jehoshaphat, my God, I'm scared of Benadad. I'm scared spitless. He's a big man with a big army. He's in my head, but I, I need my city back. I, and I hear good things about you. I hear the Lord's blessing you. Everybody's intimidated by you. We even got the Philistines and the Arabs paying you tribute. I need you. My guy, I need you on my squad. Please help me, please. (laughs) And Job was like, calm down, bro. I, I got your back, man. Here's a Kleenex. Now, of course, he had no business allying himself with this evil king, Ahab. But he does have the wherewithal to say, yo, before we do anything, we need to ask the most high. Get his blessing. Now, understand that at this point, Ahab needs no convincing. He has Jehoshaphat on his team. He he really wants the city back. He's determined to go, come what may. But because he knows Jehoshaphat's a godly man, and he needs Jehoshaphat more than Jehoshaphat needs him, he appeases him and trots out these 400 so-called prophets of Jehovah. And they all give him the green light. Go up, Yahweh will give you the victory over Syria. Now, these are not prophets of Baal or prophets of Ashereth. um, you know, Ahab's not going to risk insulting Jehoshaphat by having some, some, some idolatrous prophets come through there. And, and true prophets of Baal would never speak in the name of Yahweh. So these are fake prophets. These so-called prophets of God promise success, but Jehoshaphat's not buying it. He smells a rat. He's like, I, I heard about y'all y- 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 wicked kings of Israel. Y'all y- 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 ordain anybody who wants to be a prophet, you say, come on in. Anybody wants to be a priest, you don't look at their resume. You don't look at their lineage. You don't look at their track record. You just stamp approval and let them do their thing. I need someone who's legit. I need someone with a beard, with a gruff voice, hasn't taken a bath for a while, has got a haggard appearance because he's been in jail for rustling for some feathers and ticking people off. Seems like you, all you got is yes men. And AF says, maybe not. I know a guy. But I can't stand him. He, he always has something smart to say about me, always prophesying doom and gloom. And Joseph is like, hold up. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You have somebody who's a prophet of God who doesn't like you, wicked King Ahab, and you don't like him. Oh, oh, this is going to be good. Where's my popcorn? Man, l- l- this, is the, this is the man we need to talk to. Bring him in. So his messenger goes to Micaiah, who's a prophet, who scholars believe is the same prophet who prophesied against Ahab about Benadad, lecturing him for letting him off the hook in chapter 20. So Ahab doesn't want to hear his mouth because now things have gotten out of hand with Benadad and he doesn't want an I told you so speech. But he knows he has to placate Jehoshaphat. So he sends a messenger to go get Micaiah the prophet. And the messenger tells him, yo, everyone's on the same page predicting success for the king. So don't make waves, just, just play ball. Just play cool. So, so Micaiah comes in, and Ahab asks him, shall I go up to Ramoth-Gilead? And Micaiah trolls him. You know, he's thinking, you've already made up your mind. You don't really want to know God's will. You just want your opinion to come out of my mouth. So ain't no point in asking me. So he tells him, go up. Yahweh, give you, Yahweh will give you the victory. That's what you want to hear, right? And, and Ahab just hears the sarcasm and the shade just dripping from his mouth. And, and he, he knows Jehoshaphat's watching and is going to get upset and see through this. So before he can object, he says, Micaiah, stop playing games. I want the truth. And Micaiah says, you can't handle the truth. Because real talk, y'all going to lose. Bottom line. How about them apples? And Ahab told, turns to Jehoshaphat and says, I told you. See, he's always got something smart to say. He doesn't like me. Always trying to rain on my parade. And Micaiah continues. And this is where it gets interesting. So he relays this vision that he has where he saw God sitting on his throne and the whole multitude of heaven is standing around him. And God says, Who will entice Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So you have different ideas being thrown around. This is a brainstorming session going on. And then one spirit comes forward and says, I will persuade him by being a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And and, and God says, you know, I think you're on to something. Go and do what you do. Now, the question is, who is this lying spirit? Because, you know, we know from the Bible that God cannot tempt anyone, that James says that. We know from numerous verses of the Bible, God cannot lie. He is truth personified. So this cannot be God. It cannot be any of his agents. This is none other than Satan, the father of lies himself or somebody under his command. But most likely is Satan, because we see in the book of Job a similar council of heaven, comes together and, and, and Satan is there and, and he's given permission by God to go do what he wants to do. So here God has allowed Satan to do evil, but he's also sent truth. And even though Ahab, by this point, he's sold, he's sold out to the devil, he's consumed with wickedness, there's really no hope for him. God in his mercy still gives him an opportunity for salvation. And the Micaiah is telling him, all these prophets have a lying spirit, they're leading you to your death Don't listen to them. So Ahab gets mad, throws Micaiah in prison, goes out into battle, and gets killed just like was prophesied. Now, we can blame God for what happened. You know, the text even says that the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of these prophets. But clearly we know that it was Satan's lies. And yet still, we can't blame him either. Because Ahab already made a choice to do evil this whole time. Like, he was already dead set on going to get his precious little city back. He didn't need the devil. That was the icing on the cake. You know, that those prophets telling him the victory was coming was affirmation versus information. And, and the word of God was just as available to him as the word of the devil. So if we were to retell this story without the false prophets with the lying spirit of Satan and without the word of God via, via Micaiah, Ahab would have gone anyway. And even if there were no false prophets, just the word of God, we can argue that Ahab also would have gone because when has Ahab ever listened to the voice of God? You see what I'm saying? So this was a choice made by Ahab and Ahab alone because God knows when a person is lost, uh, but Satan doesn't. He ain't taking no chances. So he will continue to fan those flames to make sure that that person who was chosen to reject God will indeed be lost forever. So how does this apply to our lives? Remember that you are always a deciding vote. You plus God is a majority, and you plus the devil is a majority. So the devil and God, they cancel each other out, because the decision between life and death has been placed squarely on your shoulders. God tells us in Deuteronomy, I have set before you life and death. And then because we are so saturated with sin, with our own desires, not the devil whispering in our ears, we're so sick with sin that God actually has to implore us, please, please, Choose life and not death. You know, you know how silly that is? You know, that's, that's, that's like someone putting a gun to your head and saying, I can either pull the trigger or give you a million dollars. And you're sitting there deliberating, and are like, hmm, well. And they're saying, wait a minute. This is not nuclear physics. Please, choose a million dollars. This is not a trick question. And, and that's God's charge to us. Please, choose life and not death. The devil is not a factor. He's not in the equation. Let's stop saying things like I would be a better Christian, but the devil just is keeping me down. Uh, My children should be better behaved, but the devil is just all up in them. Nothing I can do. Uh, I would have a better marriage, but the devil keeps getting in the way. I would have gotten a good grade on that test, but the devil had me up all night, and I couldn't get enough rest. Like, we're literally at the point where we're saying the devil ate my homework. It's ridiculous. So as long as we keep shifting blame, to Satan, he has us on his side of the table. You know, we keep kicking that can down the road, and it's simply us procrastinating on being accountable and taking a stand to exercise the power of choice that we have and the power to accept the salvation which the devil has no access to. And this is a decision that he will include a long time ago. Let's not get sidetracked by him and his foolishness. So let's transition to self-check. When you're going through a trial, first thing you should ask yourself in prayer is, what is the reason for this happening? What's going on behind the scenes? Because there are two reasons why you have trials. One is because something that, that you've done, whether by commission or by omission, that has essentially put you outside of God's protection. You know, in other words, the devil always attacking. He, he's always got this maelstrom of flack attacks. Aimed at every single person on this planet, just like that rain or hailstorm that's outside, and and you've been inside under the protection, but you decide to go outside into the rain without a raincoat, without an umbrella. So God allowing that consequence to come through is his way of letting you know that you're on a destructive path. So that's one thing. And the other reason is you may pray for God to examine you and search your heart. And this may not be about a disobedience per se, but it's about him reminding you that you need to be refined as gold in the fire. If trials don't come, it doesn't matter how righteous we think we are, we'll eventually stop praying, stop reading our Bibles, he knows that. So when that trial comes, your prayer is, why is this happening? And the worst thing you can do is treat a spiritual problem with a physical solution. You know, trying to resolve the symptoms instead of the disease. So, so let's, 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 let's make sure we take responsibility for our, for our actions and not allow the devil to have any excuse, any rain in our lives. Spar our heads for prayer. Father God, I thank you for what you have done in our lives and giving us this power of choice that is unparalleled, for giving us the free will to accept salvation, a choice that the devil does not have. And I thank you for giving us the power that he cannot snatch that away from us, that we don't have to share that fate of hell, which was created just for the devil and his age, angels. So I'm asking that you give us the courage to exercise that, to not blame the devil, to not blame uh, folks in our lives uh, for the decisions we make, for bad things that happen, for our circumstances, for keeping us distracted. We have to take responsibility, which you have given us. So, 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 Father, give us that power. I ask that you be with every person who's watching. I ask that you be with the folks in the studio, the people who come by here, that you bless each and every one of us because we all want to be saved when you come. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. I'll see you next week at voxwave.com. Thank you.